As we continue this journey to the cross that we call Lent, we come today to John chapter 11. And with it, we come to the story of a man named Lazarus, who together with his two sisters, Martha and Mary, and I think this is important, were not just friends of Jesus. They were really, really close friends of Jesus. Now, why does that matter? Why does that kind of give context and color to the story? Well, because as every one of us knows, special friends have special privileges. Is that not the case? They have special claims on us. Is that not true? I mean, the reality is that for all of us, whether we want to admit this or not, there are some people for whom we will do some things. And then there are people who, when they call and they're in crisis, man, you're going to drop everything. It doesn't matter what you're doing, and you're going to go to their rescue. Okay, so why is that important for this story? Because these three people who are not just friends, but who are really close friends of Jesus are going to come to Jesus with a request that honestly, at least in his life, and by this point in the narrative of his life, has become kind of pedestrian. They're going to come to him asking for a healing, or to put it differently, they're going to come to him asking him to do for them something that he has done and that he knows that they know that he has done for thousands of perfect strangers. And the life of Lazarus hangs in the balance. So then, what is their confident expectation? Their confident expectation is that surely Jesus is going to do this for us. I mean, if he's going to do it for anyone, and he's done it for thousands of perfect strangers, well, then obviously he's going to do this for us. Or is he? Well, let's find out. John says this in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 5. He says that now Jesus, and notice what frames the whole story. This is the setup for everything that follows. He says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. So John begins with the love issue. And he says there is love upon love upon love of Christ for these three people. And then he uses the little word so, which then connects the love upon love upon love that Jesus has for these three people to absolutely everything that follows. He says now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. So, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he said to his guys, guys, I know we've got a lot of important things to do. I know that it's really happening out here in Galilee. I understand that we've got a great ministry going, but this is Lazarus, people, and we've got to go. And they dropped everything, and they raced day and night to get to Lazarus. And Jesus ran in the house, and he healed Lazarus, and he saved the day. And that's the end of the story, and now we can pray. That's not what happened. I hope you're not disappointed by that necessarily, but that's not what happens. What does Jesus in love do? Because it's pretty heavy. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. So, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, He knowingly and intentionally and purposefully stayed two days longer in the place where He was, and Lazarus died. So try to enter into that. Picture that. Jesus is off and He's doing His ministry thing. So He is preaching, He is teaching, and He is healing thousands of perfect strangers. But He's not in the city of Bethany, which is where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. They know that He's off doing that, but He's not so far away that they can't get Him a note. And so Lazarus gets sick, and they sit down and they write a little note to Jesus. Dear Jesus, Lazarus is sick. It's not a cold. It's not a stomach bug. It's not his allergies. Let us be perfectly plain so that there's absolutely no ambiguity here whatsoever. If you do not come and heal Lazarus right now, Lazarus is going to die. See you soon. Lazarus, Martha, 
Mary. And then they take this note and they fold it up very carefully and they put it in a little envelope and they seal it, you know, and then they give it to a trusted emissary, somebody that they know knows who Jesus is. And they tell this guy where Jesus is at. And they say, whatever comes, you have to deliver this message. And this guy takes the message, you know, and he finds Jesus and he delivers the message. And it's got all kinds of red letters all over it saying, emergency, read right now. And he says, it's an emergency. You need to read it right now. And Jesus takes it and he opens it up and he reads it. And what John is saying is that then in love, as an expression of his love, he folded it up, he put it in his pocket, and he let Lazarus die. He did not come to the rescue. Okay, so feel the weight of that. And for some of you, that doesn't take a lot of imagination, does it? Because you've seen this happen in your life. You've watched a marriage die. You've watched a friendship die. You've watched a dream or an ambition die. You've watched a person die. And you've sent your letters in the form of your prayers. And he didn't answer, at least not how you wanted him to or when you wanted him to, in the way that you wanted him to. And so then what do you start wondering? You start wondering, well, how do I reconcile this with the claim that he loves me? In other words, this doesn't look a lot like love to me. How can Jesus love me or this person or that person or those people and not come to the rescue and not deliver and not answer my note or prayer or message or whatever? And I think that's exactly what these folks had to work through. I mean, how many times do you think over the course of those days as the life of Lazarus is ebbing away before he goes unconscious, he said to his sisters, guys, I, you know, I, I don't know what's going on here. I, I mean, like, I'm not going to make it much longer. You know, what, what, tell me again what you said in that note because, I mean, did you give him any leeway for like hanging out in Galilee any longer than he, he ought to? Like, was it absolutely crystal clear that if he didn't turn tail and come running to save me, that I wasn't going to make it? Is that clear? Can you tell me again what you said? Who did you send this with again? Bring that person in. I want to question them. Do you know who Jesus is? Yes. Did you actually see Jesus? Yes. Did you give him the note or are you lying? Like maybe you lost it, now you pretended, now you're panicked. And Did you actually give him the note? Yes. Did you tell him he had to read it? Yes. Did he read it? Yes. What did he do with it? Well, he put it in his pocket. And? No, that's it. Then he went back to preaching and teaching and healing perfect strangers. How many times do you think that Martha and Mary, the sisters of this man, as they're watching their brother, whom they love, die? got up and in hurt and in frustration, dealing with not just the agony of the loss, but of the where in the heck is the Lord, and just got up and walked in their hurt and in their pain, down the street of their house, you know, and out to the gate of their city, and looked down the road that Jesus would be coming down, and that they had been confidently expecting Him to come down, until maybe now. Like how many people did they pull in as they're coming through the gate and say, hey, hey, you know, where did you come from? Oh, you came from Nazareth. Okay, well, fantastic. That's up in the region where Jesus is. Have you seen him? Have you heard from him? Is he like around the bend and we just can't see? Is he over the hill and we can't, but like he's going to be here in 15 minutes? Have you seen Jesus? No. Have you heard anything about him? No. Are you sure? Yeah, no sign of him. And what do you think they wondered? Did we make him mad? You know, uh, how about does he really love us? Because, I mean, how do you square this? How do you make this add up? But John comes, and at the beginning of this story, he removes that entirely from the equation. 
It's like he's coming and saying, listen, I know that this is going to be the issue, so let me just take it off the table right now. Again, he says that Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus, so no question about that. And then, as an expression of that love is what he's saying, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he knowingly, intentionally, purposefully stayed two days longer in the place where he was, and Lazarus died. And you said, okay, I hear that, but how is that love? Here's how it's love, and only Jesus at this point in this story can see this. He sees things that we can't see. And our stories too. It's love because Jesus knows what he's going to do with this death. And what is he going to do with this death? He's going to use this death as an opportunity to teach Lazarus. You're like, no, 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 Lazarus is dead. Yeah, just hang on to that, okay? So he's going to teach Lazarus and Martha and Mary, and not just them, but all of us and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people ever since, a lesson that is far and away exceeding in value the life of this one man or of me. Or of you. And what is the lesson? It is that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. That Jesus Christ, there is one in the whole of the universe who has the capacity, who has the ability to take things that have died and bring them back to life. And not only that, but on the last day, history is linear, it moves forward, it's not cyclical, it has a beginning and it has an end. And that in the end, when we stand before that Jesus and we're called to give an account for the life that Almighty God created and gifted to us freely for the greatest purpose ever, which is to live for Him. And yeah, so maybe we haven't done that entirely well. He wants us to see that He's the difference between eternal life and eternal death. He brings life out of things that have died. Dead marriages, dead friendships, dead relationships, dead finances, dead businesses, and dead people in the end. And in the end, faith in Him and in what He's done in His perfect life, sufferings, death, burial, and resurrection, for all who claim that as the payment of the debt that we owe to God for the way that we've lived, He's the difference between eternal life and eternal death. And I'm sorry, but that's not like a small thing. Oh, it's just that lesson, you know. Oh, should have just let Him live. It's a big deal. So Jesus in love lets Lazarus die. And then he says to his disciples, he gathers them up, he says, all right guys, so here's the deal. Lazarus has fallen asleep. Now what does he mean by that? Because Lazarus is dead. So he's clearly not fallen asleep the way that hopefully you and I fell asleep last night and hopefully we'll fall asleep again tonight. But he is speaking of death for people who have faith in him as a form of sleep that Jesus has the power to wake us up from just like you're able to walk into your kid's room while they're sleeping, particularly if they're teenagers, you know, at like one o'clock in the afternoon, and you can shake them and and wake them up. You know, you, you have that power. It's like waking the... Yeah, it's all right. You can say it. It's like waking the dead. You know, all the teenagers are like, good grief. Jesus has the power to wake the dead in a way that none of us can. So he says to his guys, look, Lazarus is asleep. We're going to go and I'm going to wake him up. And they don't understand what he's talking about. So they're like, well, you know, Lord, I mean, he's been sick. So what does that mean? It means that they know what's going on with Lazarus. And it means that they're confused too, don't you think? Because they understand the relationships here. They're probably looking at Jesus the last couple of days and going, why are we not running to the aid of this man? And what if I sent you a letter? Would you run to my aid? There's a lot of confusion in this story. Except for the Lord, he's not confused. 
So why don't we let him sleep, you know, because, I mean, he's been sick. And Jesus says, no, 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 let me, let me be plain. Lazarus has died, and I'm going to go and wake him up. And maybe you just, you know, kind of showed up here today, and this is your first or maybe second exposure to Christianity, and you're thinking, wow, that, this is getting weird, like quick, you know? I mean, this is, this is odd, isn't it? And it is odd. I mean, that is an odd statement. It's an incredible claim. And it would be crazy if I made that claim. Oh, your, your friend died, your, your husband died, your wife died. Your, no worries, I'm going to go over there and wake them up. It's kind of like waking a teenager, you know, we'll just shake them a little bit and that's nuts. It'd be crazy if you made that claim. Sorry, hope that's not presumptuous, but I'm just assuming you'd agree with that. But that's the difference. Jesus is not like anyone else. That's, that's the whole point. He is unlike anyone else. And what makes him different? What makes him different is Christmas. And frankly, Christmas explains the whole of his life, including this story. Why? Because the invisible and tangible God becomes visible and tangible in the person of Jesus Christ. He supernaturally takes to himself through that conception flesh and blood of humanity and then walks among us. So what kind of life then would you expect him to lead? One that is devoid of power? One that is absent of miracles? Good grief, if that's the kind of life you got, I'd be questioning the claim of Christmas. But instead, since you get the supernatural life, I'm going, yeah, you know what, I think that actually happened. And if he's God, this is not taxing for him. You know, he's not going, oh man, guys, I need a power bar before we go in to see Lazarus because I don't know if I've got enough energy to raise him from the dead. He's just like, up you go. Christ is unique. That's the point of the whole story and so much of the whole Bible. So anyway, Jesus says to his guys, look, he's died. I'm going to wake him up. Going to be kind of memorable. And so by the time that they get there, Lazarus has been dead in the grave for four days. Here's why that actually matters. It matters because there was a superstition, and it's not a truism. It's not a true thing. It's a bad theology, if you will. But in their day, they believed that when a person died, the spirit of that person would effectively hover around their body for three days waiting to see if the body, for some reason, was able on its own, I guess, to revive. And then if it revived, they would re-inhabit the body. But on the fourth day, these people who buried their own dead, these people who didn't have funeral homes and all the embalming procedures that we have today, these people who understood the progression of death physically, they all understood that the fourth day was the day of decomposition. That was the day when it was apparent that the body was decomposing. And that spirit would leave. So why does Jesus wait to the fourth day? Because he doesn't want anybody going, ah, you know what had happened on day two? Probably he just revived. Well, he's revived, but by the power of Christ. That's the idea. So he gets there on the fourth day, and Martha, who's been waiting for this man... She hears that he's coming and she rushes down the street and out the gate and she goes out to meet the Lord and there's no hug and there's no kiss and there's no, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I hope you had a nice trip. Can't wait to hear all the details. Hope you ate in that restaurant in Nazareth that I referred you to. And oh, by the way, I think that made, no, no, no. She comes right out and deals with it. She says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And you know what? She's right. But listen to his response. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, well, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Listen, every Jew alive in that day understood that. 
She's saying, no, 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 yeah, I know that it rise again because a final day is coming and history is linear and it has a beginning and it will have an end and we'll have to answer to the Lord and there will be a resurrection on that day. And she's like, I got all of that. You don't need to give me a lesson in eschatology right now. Here's the deal. I just wanted him to be alive today. Is that too much? How about tomorrow? Maybe the next day. I was hoping he wouldn't die yet. And it just seems so unnecessary. But what is she missing? She's missing the connection between the resurrection of the dead on that last day and the one who will call the dead forth and who on that day will be the difference between eternal life and eternal death. She's missing some pretty significant things. She's missing the fact that that's Jesus. And so Jesus now begins to clear that up. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. It's not just some event, it's me. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me in the end and for forever shall never die. And so then here's his question. It is the question of the whole story. And it's the point of the whole story. The story is here to call us to faith in Christ. To awaken us to the uniqueness of Jesus. He says, do you believe this? So there it is. And then Mary, Martha's sister, who's missed this whole conversation, comes out to see Jesus as well. And she says exactly the same thing. Verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So these ladies have been talking and not just talking, these ladies have been suffering. And so notice what Jesus does next. John says that when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, who were they? Those are people that they hired. This is a fabulously wealthy family. The Bible makes that clear elsewhere. This is a man well known. And in those days, what they would do is they wouldn't have a memorial service that lasts for an hour and a half or whatever on a Saturday afternoon. They would have a memorial service that went on for day after day after day, you see. And so as the passions would die and the weeping would calm down, in honor of the dead, they would go out and hire professional mourners who would come and they would play sorrowful music. And they would, as they saw the the grief subsiding, amp it up by weeping and wailing themselves and getting everybody stirred up. They're there to help the people grieve. All right, well, they're there too. It says that when Jesus saw Mary weeping and those people, the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then it simply says that Jesus wept. And if you're hanging with me thus far, then maybe you're thinking, well, why did he weep? That doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, it's been four days since Lazarus died. There's no record, at least, of Jesus crying once until now. Beyond that, he's already declared what it is that he's going to do. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So like he's going to solve the problem that's making everybody so upset. Why is he bothered by that? Why does the Lord weep? It's evident, isn't it? He weeps because he's moved. Well, what is he moved by? He's moved by the passions. He's moved by the confusion. He's moved by the anger. He's moved by the, by the effects of the feelings of betrayal that these people have been suffering. He's moved by the loss and by the tears and all of these things of the people that he loves, which means that we don't gather here to serve a cold, distant, detached, compassionless Christ. But in fact, we come to worship one who identifies with us in our weakness, and particularly, it seems, 
in our suffering and in our sorrow. And so Jesus says again in verse 33 that, or John says, that when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews, these professional mourners who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. It means that he was actually angry. He was made angry. What made him angry? Was it Mary who made him angry? Was it Martha who made him angry? What about Lazarus? Did he make him angry? What about these people, the professional mourners? Is that what made him angry? No, none of those things. He's not angry at anyone in particular. He is looking at the effects of a broken world that was created unbroken on people that he loves. And it makes him angry. And the reality is that as we look around and we see the effects of the brokenness, our own and that of other people, and how it affects other people, it ought to make us angry. Angry enough to do something. Now, we can't raise the dead. Got that? And if I claim to be able to do that, then that's nuts. Put that on the record. But we can go out into the world in the power of Christ and make a difference for people who are suffering. And certainly we can do that for each other. And so anyway, Jesus said to them, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. And so then the Jews who see Jesus weeping said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, what Martha and Mary at this point were probably still thinking, which is, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man, saw that story last week, also have kept Lazarus from dying. And of course he could have kept Lazarus from dying. So then why didn't he do that? Because that would have been less loving of him. Boy, that doesn't feel like love, Tom. Not yet. But that's coming. And so John says, then then Jesus deeply moved again came to the tomb. And then he begins to describe the tomb. He says that it was a cave with a stone laid against it. And I I want to tell you that it's not the kind of cave that you have in your mind. So I've been to what is most likely this tomb in the city of Bethany. And it's not a cave that you walk into from ground level, you know, like cut into the side of a mountain or hill or something like that with with a stone that rolls in front of it. That's what the tomb of Jesus is like. And we'll get to that in two weeks. But the tomb of Lazarus is an underground chamber. It is cut into the stone beneath the ground. And the stone that's laid against it is really laid on top of it. It's a big square paving stone. And when you remove the big square paving stone, what do you see? Well, you see like a little staircase and you go down the little staircase and then you kind of do one of these deals and you crouch over and you walk through a short little hallway. And then you get into this little chamber, which is the burial chamber. And probably you could, you know, if you really want to jam people in there, You could probably put like 10 people in there, but being a somewhat of a claustrophobic guy, I was unwilling to go with more than like one. That was it for me, okay? Beyond that, it was counseling. That was it. But you get the idea. So they're they're standing at a hole in the ground. There's a paver over the top of it. And even then when it's removed, it's not like, I mean, I guess you could kind of squat down and try to look up the hallway, but you can't see the chamber under there. So Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave, as I've just described, and a stone lay on top of it I'm going to go with. And everybody who's come now to this tomb with Jesus just assumes what I think all of us would assume, which is Jesus has come to the tomb to pay his respects to the dead. I mean, nobody sees this resurrection thing coming. And that's what makes what Jesus says next so incredibly horrifying to these people. Because Jesus, he gets there and he says, take away the stone, you know, and Martha loses it. That's it. She's like, no, 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 this is crazy. Lord, she says, by this time there will be an odor. Why? For he has been dead four days. He's decomposing. 
Everybody knows he's decomposing. It's the fourth day. And I love this part of the story because what that says to me is Jesus is not afraid of my death or my rot or my stink or my decay, and he's not afraid of yours either. And there are lots of different kinds of deaths and rots and stinks and decay. Aren't there? It's not like he's above that. I think in life you encounter people who can't handle that. So maybe your parents were not able to handle that, or your kids were not able to handle that, or your friends were not able to handle that, or somebody you were married to, or maybe somebody you are married to. Having trouble handling that. Your boss maybe couldn't handle that. Some church maybe couldn't handle that. What this is saying, clearly I think, is, you know what, Jesus can handle that. And more than that, he can deal with it. He can bring you to life. He, he's the one who brings life to dead things. He's the one who makes new and makes clean. So anyway, Jesus says, look, remove the stone. Martha says, bad idea. And then in the King James, it says, she says, Lord, by this time, he stinketh. And uh, I just love that. So Lord, by this time, he stinketh. And Jesus is struck by that. He goes, I didn't even think about that. You know what, guys? Martha is right about this. He's really stinketh. I mean, four days, and it's like 150 degrees out here. So here's what we're going to do. Rips up some grass. He throws it up to see which way the wind is blowing. He figures it out. He goes, okay, everybody move up wind. We're all going to come back here. Okay, he gives out Febreze to all of his disciples. He says, look, here's the thing. When they remove the stone, you just start shooting the hole. Just start shooting it down into this thing, right? He pulls out a surgical mask. He straps it carefully on his face and puts on his rubber gloves. Is that what he's doing? That's not Jesus. Effectively, he's saying, of course it stinks. There's death in there. There's rot in there. There's decay in there. There's smell in there. There's all kinds of nasty stuff in there. I got it. You don't need to give me a lesson on biology. Thank you. There's someone I love in there. And we're going to move the stone out of the way now. And then we're going to deal with it. So Martha says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. And Jesus, in verse 40, says to her, Martha, did I not tell you that what? Because it's the whole point of the story. That if you believed, you would see the glory of God. And so they relent. They took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said out loud so that everybody there could hear him, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this out loud on account of all of these people standing around me so that they may believe, (laughs) it's the whole point of the story, that you sent me. But sent me as what? As As a prophet, as a really great teacher, as oh, a wonderful moral example. Well, that's dumbing it down way too far. But you sent me as the resurrection and the life, as the one who calls life out of dead things, brings them back to life, as the one who in the end is the judge between eternal life and eternal death and is himself the one who freely grants eternal life to all who in this life humble themselves and recognize that, well, yeah, actually I need that. I look a lot like this dead guy. So anyway, he says, look, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifts up his eyes. He prays out loud so that they might believe that God sent him. And then 
When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. But how did he come out? Like, what, what did he look like? With his hands and his feet bound with linen strips. He's, he's effectively mummified. So what's all over those linen strips? Because I'm going to go with decomposition. Sorry if you've got lunch plans. But really, like, how, how do those linen strips look? How do those linen strips smell? What do those linen strips do? They constrained him. He comes out bound with linen strips, hands and feet, and his face is wrapped with a cloth, struggling, no doubt, to kind of get to the stairway and then to get up the little stairs. And Jesus sees him with all of this stuff all over him, and he says to his family and friends of this community of people who witness all of this, he says, unbind him and let him go. And I see a parallel there to us as well in that when Jesus calls us forth from the grave, guys, spiritually speaking, and he calls us into a relationship with him, you know, I mean, listen, typically we don't smell all that good, do we? I mean, we're alive now, we're forgiven now, we're given a new nature now, and all of that is wonderful, but, but generally speaking, we're, we're still bound and Sin and pride and selfishness and addiction and all of these things that, that stink. And then how does Christ deliver us from those things? Because He delivers us from those things when we bring those things to Him. He does it by His Spirit, through His Word, and in community with His people. Jesus says to the community, unbind Him. Let him go. But that presupposes something, doesn't it? That we're willing to engage in community and to be honest about who we actually are. I mean, to Lazarus' credit, here's what he doesn't do. Jesus says, come forth, you know, and he doesn't say, hey, you know what, I'm alive. And I'm pretty happy about that. So thank you, by the way. But I look like a wreck in here. Like I stink, I smell, I'm all bound up. This is no bueno. And I don't want to come out publicly like this. I'd prefer it if you would just grab a hose and a bucket of suds and a, you know, fresh change of clothes and some Old Spice and come down here with me. We'll get cleaned up in here together, see? And then I'll come out when I look good doesn't work that way. He just does what he's commanded to do. Lazarus, come forth. And he comes forth. Stink and grave clothes and all of those things. And to their great credit, nobody in his community ran from him, but instead they all ran to him. Probably helped him up those little steps. It would have been tough to hop up those things, I would think. And they unbound him. They unwrapped him. They cleaned him up. They set him free. And that's what a real community does. A real community is a shame-free zone. Why? Because a real community is full of people who understand on a visceral level <laughs> their own death, their own stink, their own rot, their own decay, and so much so that they've been utterly humbled by it. And it makes them not afraid of that kind of stuff from anyone else, even if it comes to them in a different form. And they get that Jesus alone makes alive from that. And they get that being unbound, being made clean, being released and made free is a community event. And they get that they're part of that community. So that's like part of the deal. So anyway, we'll finish with verse 45. Where John tells us, therefore, many of the Jews, these professional mourners who showed up for a paycheck, who had no idea that they were going to witness this. Boy, we've been to a lot of funerals. This one's kind of unique. And they saw what Jesus had done, 
What did they do? Because it's the point of the whole story. Because they got the point of the story. They believed in Jesus, not just as the Messiah and the Son of God and the Savior of the world, but as the resurrection and the life, the one who alone can bring life out of things that have died. And the one who alone can release us from the things we've been through, from the things we have done, knowingly, purposefully, intentionally, and even negligently. Things that we need to be forgiven of. Guys, he brings us to life and he places us in authentic community. Shame-free zone. And then he sets us free by his spirit, through his word, and through his people. So, the single question of the story, you know it at this point, I hope, is do you believe this? Because if you do, then come on out. The Lord is not afraid of your stuff, and neither are we. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, the fact that you have not forsaken us uh, in the way that we have taken the world that you've created and made it very different. As broken people, we have contributed to the brokenness of this world and to the effects of all of that brokenness, both in our own lives and in the lives of others. Lord, and yet you sent into this world one clothed who is your son in our real flesh and blood, a man for humanity who lived an unbroken life and then who was broken for us. Lord, the one who suffered and who died, that our debt with you for all the ways we've lived for other things, for other people, might be satisfied completely and fully by your Spirit through faith in that Jesus who is unique in all the annals of history. He's not like me. He's not like anyone else. He is God-made man. Lord, you make alive. And then you deliver. And so then we pray for life that you would make us alive. And we pray for deliverance. That by your Spirit and, and through your Word, and in community with these people, we might be unbound, we might be cleaned up, we might be set free, and we might be launched out of here to be a part of doing that, what you're doing in the lives of others. So do all these things and whatever else you want to do in Jesus' name. Amen.